So um, we are at the end, and this is kind of a capping verse. I like to look at it that way. So let me read it. We read it this morning together. Uh, let me go ahead and read that to you. <clears throat> Zen Master Baoche of Mount Mayu was fanning himself. A monk approached and said, Master, the nature of wind is permanent and there is no place it does not reach. Why then do you fan yourself? Although you understand that the nature of the wind is permanent, Bhatshad replied, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. What is the meaning of, the, of it reaching everywhere? Asked the monk again. The master just kept fanning himself and the monk bowed deeply. The actualization of the Buddha Dharma, the vital path of its correct transmission is like this. If you say that you do not need to fan yourself, because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have wind without fanning. Sorry, my eyes are having a little challenge here. You do not need to fan yourself because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have fin, fan, wind without fanning. You will understand neither permanence nor the nature of wind. The nature of wind is permanent. Because of that, the wind of the Buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the long river. So let me just say a word about Bauche. His uh, name means clear treasure. He, and he was also called Matsu or Mayu. 
and there's really not much known about him. He, uh, he, he got his name because he lived on the mount. And we think he was born around 720. So that was about 500 years before Dogen Zenji. And his teacher, and I mentioned this because you'll see in a minute, his teacher Matsu, who, uh, or Mazu, as he was called, he was associated with two famous sayings that we've talked about here. So you can sort of see the correlation. The mind is itself Buddha, and ordinary mind is the way. So those are attributed to his teacher. And I believe that Bakshi had a very special place in Dogen's heart, because he uses three of his koans throughout the Shobal Genzo. And of course, this is one of them. So, Going back to the text, well, what is this Buddha nature? That is the wind. The wind is Buddha nature and it is everywhere. And, but, and it's permanent, wind is permanent. We don't necessarily know that it's everywhere, but we know that to keep our practice alive, we have to fan it. And uh, that is the way we can tap into this Buddha nature, fanning it. And as we do this, we know our practice deepens and widens. It's hard to grasp this. It's really experiential. And at the end where it says, the great earth. The, the wind of the Buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrance, the cream of the long river. Very poetic way of saying things. But the great earth filled with gold, well, that's it. Everything is filled with Buddha nature, to the great ocean, to every grain of sand, every speck of dust. And then, you know, we think of gold as being such a precious stone with so many fine qualities. It's malleable, but hard, at the same time, beautiful. And that's Buddha nature everywhere. And the water of the river, that, that is really us, the stream of our life, going through our life. And as we go through this life and practice with our sincere practice, here is using cream, which is, you know, rich and fulfilling thing. That is how our life becomes as we practice. So what, what is practice? And what is enlightenment? Well, Dogen Zenji uses one word. He doesn't see them as two. They're, it is really practice enlightenment. And Sojin, he would call it enlightened activity. So when we practice, that is enlightenment. They're not separate, they are simply joined, no boundary between them. Practice and enlightenment. Or realization, we can call it realization too. And Dogen uses a lot of analogies about nature. So in tune to nature. And I myself am fond of thinking of nature and it's Buddha nature. So for example, I think of a tree and it's practicing enlightenment. It's expressing itself fully, actualizing the fundamental point, really. It's doing exactly what it is meant to do. 
And for example, let's say it produces seeds, and maybe it produces flowers or fruit or nuts, and then gives them, gives them to the earth, and then begins that cycle again, restores itself. Actualizing its fundamental point, expressing that Buddha nature. You can see that in all of nature. It doesn't fight itself, it just does what it is meant to do. You know, it's, it is challenging to talk about enlightenment. We attempted to do it in several of the classes, and everyone has a different idea about it. Everybody thinks about it differently. And uh, you might have even had what you might call an enlightenment experience. And you're waiting for the next one, and the next one after that. But I guess to me, this enlightenment is something it's intrinsic, it's like at our core, our very base, may not have a feeling to it or anything. But this Buddha nature is at our core and an enlightened nature. And as I say, maybe there's no feeling to it. We go about our day having this enlightened practice. Just doing our practice, maybe no thought, no feeling. So how, how do we know we've even had an enlightened activity? And is it important for us to know? Kodo Sawaki, he was known as Homeless Kodo. Some of you are probably familiar with him. Uh, we, one of our texts, um, included Kosho Uchiyama's reading on the Genjo Kong, and that was his, that was uh, his teacher, Kodo Sawaki. And he said, I've had two or three big satori's and a dozen small ones, and they don't amount to a hill of beans. <laughs> so a satori is like a sudden enlightenment, just effortless, a realization. And I hear people talking about waiting for that, wanting that. Yeah, I guess it would be nice to have one of those. <laughs> but in our practice, we don't really stress that. What we, what we stress is practice enlightenment. Knowing that when we're practicing, this is an enlightened state. So I, I, I like to think of uh, practices formal and informal. That's how it is for me. Um, for example, formal practice. Well, it's like a place here at BCC. This is our training ground. And our informal is, and it doesn't have to be BCC, wherever you practice, you're being trained. And our informal practice here would be when we leave the gate and we take what we've learned out into the world and practice there. So we all have different reasons for coming to practice. Yet it starts, I really think, with some your own inquiring mind, this way-seeking mind that knows there's something bigger and deeper than what we are, or what we experience. And I, I feel this seed is in everyone because all the seeds are in us, the good and the bad seeds, they're all there waiting to be opened good ones. Um, and so how do we keep this alive, this, this uh, deep desire? And 
Dogen Zenji talked about it to his monks. Uh, he talked about arousing the aspiration to earnestly seek the way. And he specifically stressed how it doesn't matter whether you are smart or dull, what you know, what you don't know. That's not what, it, what is important. What matters is your sincere aspiration. It's like a joyful longing. You know, something, something gets stirred up. And then the work is to keep it stirred up and alive and active. And I see this as a great gift that we've been given, this aspiration that's been aroused. You know, for a number of years in my life, I've always been a seeker, you know, I've had all kinds of practices, just, just innate at the very core, the way it was. And uh, <clears throat> but I was always embarrassed about it because yeah. it was different. And it, you know, I tried to hide it and play it down. And in my family, I noticed nobody else had was like this. So it made me feel separate and different. And um, recently, I guess it was just absolutely recently, so I've been carrying it a while. Uh, I mentioned this to my brother, uh, that I was feeling different and separate from the family. And he just said flat out, trying to get it out of my mouth, stop saying that because it's just not true. So I tell you, that was an enlightened moment for me. That was a practice of enlightenment because it just, uh, I saw that delusion I've been carrying for so long and I could just let it go. So as I say, we just, we enter practice wherever we are. We begin there. Again, it doesn't matter how smart we are or how, or what we know and don't know, our skills. It has nothing to do with that. We just enter the stream because this aspiration has been aroused. And This practice is really, it's meant to be a joy, but it's also an obligation and a necessity. I think the longer we practice, we just see how necessary it is in our life. And at the same we know, time, we know it's uh, good for nothing. Nothing to gain, nothing to get. We're just doing it for its own sake. So going back to the question, well, how do we keep this aspiration alive? Well, if we can all answer first that we do is Zazen. This is our main tool that we use. And it's right there on our chair or cushion that we're in an enlightened state. Again, may not feel like it, may not have any feeling to it, may not have any thoughts to it, no body sensation. And yet we know this now is an, an enlightened activity. And I often, really most of the time, I have my realizations after. It's not on the cushion because on the cushion I'm trying to follow my breath and stay present. Uh, so it's afterwards that I have that recognition and realization of some sort or studying or working can happen. So after Zazen, Dogen Senji talks a lot about too. We've got to establish this faith or trust. 
He said, there may not be any proof, you know, there's for a long time that this practice is actually doing anything for us. And yet it's kind of a blind faith of not knowing, just putting our trust in the teachings and seeing for ourselves, maybe questioning too, it's good to question. And trust, some people just naturally have it, some people uh, it has to really, have to really work with it a lot. But it's so important to build that faith and that trust. Recently, Yasir Chadley was here talking about what is a good life. He's an imam, right? Imam, yeah. Some of you may have attended this class, but he said something I wrote down, I, I very much liked it. And it was, faith equals gratitude and patience. So this trust may take a while to build and really trust it. Uh, you know, lately, I will have to admit, I've been having um, some Feelings kind of a little dull and flat in my practice, unenthused. Uh, I call it a dry period. Maybe you've had that. Um, you know, there's a tendency I really like to get away. I want to invalidate the practice. You know, I've done enough. I've done my share now, so I'm going to slack off. Not really sure I'm getting anywhere now. <laughs> I read my, I've reached a plateau. <laughs> and of course, this is all in my head. I have so many conversations in my head, um, all based on my good ideas and thoughts. And actually, that is the time to double up the practice. Try sitting twice a day. Try showing up more. and continue to ask the questions such as, what is this? What is going on? What am I not seeing? And remembering, reminding myself, these are delusions. These are not real. This is just thoughts in my mind. And so it's really, I need to keep fanning the wind we grow a little more vigorously. And it's a great time to return to patience and gratitude. I didn't even realize it kind of dropped off my gratitude practice. Uh, so I remember those things to do. And you know, I, I, I just read recently a gratitude practice creates better sleep better health, and better relationships. And the Dalai Lama, Lama, he starts every day uh, a, a practice of faith and patience by praying for the Chinese, who are the ones that banned him from his own country. It's a big heart of gratitude. And Dogen Zenji particularly liked this, what he said, the practice of faith and patience will at some time in our life bring us through to the place we need to be. So this is a strong piece of my practice now. Well, the good news is, fortunately, everything is impermanent. So I know this, this stage will, will pass as well. Another thing Dogen talked about was 
learning to make mistakes. And as he said once, it is one continuous mistake. And this really requires humility when we make a mistake. And then admitting our mistake. And celebrating the mistake. Because that is actually how we learn. So it would be nice to get to a point where we welcome those mistakes. And, and maybe see them, start to see them as one joyous mistake after another. There I go again. It is good to lighten up. You know, when I first came to Dillon, or when I first came to practice, and I was a Dillon after a while, of course, we make a lot of mistakes when we're Dillons, or at least I did. And afterwards, this went on for several months, where I berate myself, you know, having another conversation with myself uh, about my mistakes. And gradually, I just learned to realize I'm going to make one joyous mistake after another, and it's okay. I recently also had a, 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 um, an example around communication uh, and I had some preconceived ideas about someone and uh, I, it was just a big conflict in my mind. I couldn't quite figure out what, what was going on, but I in my mind, I felt the person was not listening to me, was dis disrespectful, that sort of thing. I had, I had a story built up. And a couple of precepts came to my mind. Not to harbor ill will and not to slander. And this was all going, as I say, in my mind. I was slandering and har harboring this ill will with this person. And I just couldn't quite get to it, what it was. But one day I had an enlightened experience and I realized that I had jealousy and expectations of this person. And in fact, it was a lot of it was over on my side. And I had to confess this, that I had made this mistake and confessed to this, to this person. And it opened up a lot of uh, energy and goodwill, and it just was what I would call an enlightened activity that happened. And it led to another conversation and another conversation, and the way our, she was raised and the way I was raised. Oh, that's why you do that. So that was quite, Quite an opening. And the last thing I want to talk about, which is really important, is work practice. And Dogen, again, also put a lot of practice, uh, emphasis on this practice. You know, in his monastery, we don't we don't live in a monastery like his monks did, because we come and go. But that, uh, this is one of the most important activities of our practice. And in fact, Sojin would often say that. Work practice is the most important activity. And we, you know, of course, we learn so many things, how to interact with others, how to build patience and tolerance, so many skills. How to accept things the way someone is doing it. Well, I never did it that long. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, learning to accept those things and having our ideas rejected. Even. Uh, so it's like a continuing practice of letting go, which is certainly an enlightened practice. And, in, and also what's very important is we care for the temple. We couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't, we would not be here without the support 
of our practitioners. We care for the grounds, the temple itself, the buildings, and this is an expression of, of Dharma, of our, our enlightenment. And there's, we're also fulfilling that cycle of giving and receiving. Remember if that's one of the four things Ozan's going to be talking about, but you know when that there's that cycle where you when you give or when you receive you give back. And you just keep turning that wheel, giving and receiving. If you don't do that, it will die. It will just be dead. And you give the way you can, and you receive the way you can. But, and it's also compassion. We build up our compassion through this service. There was recently a study I was reading about of the elders in Japan. You know, a lot of them are living long lives and healthy lives. And they said one of the key factors was in helping others. That made them youthful and vibrant. You know, recently I had a, an experience work day. We had a work day, what, about a month ago? And of course I signed up. And then I think it was the night, well, started the night before. I had another conversation with myself. I am not going to do this again. I am too old. <laughs> I've done my share. I've been at BCC a lot of that day and I was tired. So I convinced myself, okay, this is the last one. No more. <laughs> I mean, really justifying it in my mind. And um, so the next day, you know, I showed up and I was so amazed. It was like a little beehive here. People were just bussing around and we were all in harmony doing our work. It was, uh, it was such an enlightened experience for me because I just noticed my whole attitude shifted. I just actually felt a brightness and, a, you know, it was fun. And so, you know, there again I saw those deluded thoughts I was having, you know, things I made up. So, work practice is a wonderful thing. And you know, we see, we see even in nature, again back to nature, that uh, they're doing service too. When I think about the trees, they now know that they have a practice, they have a work practice uh, by transferring their resources, like underground, they've transferred, uh, you know, nutrients where other trees or other species are in need. And so they're, they're doing service as well. So just, just uh, stepping back and looking at some of the things that may help you in your practice. Well, they're all important, but first and foremost, keeping that aspiration alive that arousal that you felt to practice. Keeping it alive through your zazen, through establishing deeper faith and trust in this practice, and through it all being willing to make mistakes and to learn from them. And then Remembering service, whether in some way, whether it's here or out in the world. Very needed not in this day to help others. So really, there is no end to our practice and there's no end to this enlightened activity. So I think I'll stop there.
And uh, if you have any questions or comments, would like to comment about your own development practice. Okay, Ellen. Is that Ellen? Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. Um, I, uh, you talked about formal and informal practice, and you talked about practice enlightenment, and they're all kind of intensity, but I was thinking about, um, you know, fanning oneself kind of constantly, and I was wondering, and I don't mean this particularly for you, but are there times when we aren't practicing? Formally or informally? Either one. I mean, when we're just not practicing. Well, that's a good question. I think, I think we are, but maybe we're unaware of it. Like when I have those conversations with myself. I don't know. That sounds like practice to me. Well, I mean the negative ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I think so. I think this is just my, my opinion. Uh, I think at the core, practice is going on, particularly if you're a practitioner and you've been aroused and you know there's something more to this life. You know there's you know, a much deeper, wider place to be no. So I think that's always there. Maybe cover it up when you think, you know, when it doesn't feel like practice. But I, I, I think it's there. Do you have thoughts about it? Um, no, I just really think about the distinction, you know, you know, between somebody who's a practitioner and somebody who's not a practitioner, somebody in another practice or in another spiritual pursuit. You know, I'm just looking at all, you know, what I think of as, you know, kind of practice. So I don't really have an answer. There's many practices. There's a lot of bodhisattvas out there that have never even heard of Zen. So, we're not, we're not the only enlightened ones here. Um, so we have to keep, and, and we need to find it. I think we need to find it in people if they're not necessarily a practitioner. Gary? Hi. Hi. Um, I feel you connected to the to the Sangha really closely. I just wanted to say that. Because oh, you're saying you're yeah, I, I feel that. Um, my question is um, about the wind. And um, I see the wind as, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of a metaphor of Buddha Dharma. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's pretty, pretty directly says it's permanent. And yet all things are impermanent. How do you... Um, that kind of confused me too. <laughs> how do you um, reconcile those two? It was a hard one for me too, Gary. Well, Buddha nature, I think, is permanent. Buddha nature is at our very core. And it is in everything. We don't necessarily experience that. So it's, I trust that. I have enough faith now in trusting that. So I see it that way. Um, 
I, I was thinking it could be, um, I, it's your talk, so I should know. <laughs> well, you're coming up in a few weeks. Yes. <laughs> Good. Um, Sue? Thank you for your talk. It's a tough one. Everything changes and the wind is permanent. And how do we hold that? It's, I guess, our practice, our study group with Mogarjuna probably helps me let go of worrying about it so much. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I saw in your talk the fan on the scroll behind you throughout, it was a blessing. Yeah. And I don't know, I felt like your talk just opened up something in me, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it might be a good thing for us all to just um, have that as a come on. Is Buddha nature permanent? As this come on saying, the wind is permanent. But I had to let go of worrying about it, actually. <laughs> yeah. And appreciate, in the, like you were having your conversations with yourself. I have those conversations, unfortunately, they're not just with myself. They, my family's familiar with them. And my daughter said the other day when she was visiting, she said, I've never understood. You complain about that place and how hard it is, and you keep going back. <laughs> <laughs> she said, let me see things. <laughs> or you're done. Or my practice, at any rate. I think that complaining is a genetic inheritance. <laughs> I have a feeling it's in all of us. A little bit of that is in all of us. But that, that realization of showing up for work day, and I did, because I had the similar conversation, didn't sign up, I just showed up, and it was a joy. Great and it day. was really great that we got rained out after lunch. <laughs> <laughs> True. And thank you for this, um, being able to concentrate on the last part of the Gensho Koan. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sue. Should we see if there's anybody online? I don't think so. Okay. Rosa, did you want to say anything? No. Oh, real shit. Careful. Well, thanks very much for your talk. Thank you. We've talked a lot in this practice period about what enlightenment is. And I was interested that you used that word many times in your talk. And I was wondering if for you there's a difference between the kind of maybe insight that comes from being able to give yourself a good talking to and say, and you know, drop down into a mind that's chattering to see more of what's behind it, whether it's about showing up at work day or about someone that you know, and the kind of realization and the way that Tobin Zenji uses it in Genjo Koan, in, in Genjo Koan. So I'm wondering how you understand that. No, I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, I'm wondering about the use of the word enlightenment. And you applied it to many different kinds of situations. And I'm wondering, in your own physical experience, and in your in your body, and in your sitting, in Zazen, if the kind of insight that you have when you recognize something about someone or some preconceived idea that's really helpful and opens things up. Mm -hmm. And the kind of realization or actualization or penetration or permeation, whatever, that is talked about in Genjo Koan. Do you see those as similar experiences, I wonder? Well, I, I think so for me. Um, yes, I do. I think, um, maybe I'm making it up, but it feels like a shift 
when something, you know, the, the examples I gave, there was a shift. And I think that's practice, practice enlightenment. It's not necessarily a big thing. It's those subtle little moments where like, you know, like we, we talk about aha moments, like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> Now what? <laughs> In other words, very subtle. Nothing special, yet very special. We stopped and really looked at it. It's the, the line between something that's psychological, like a psychological understanding or a way in which we may have a certain frame of mind that orients, and I think you use the word comparing or judging, for example. Those kinds of insights are so profound and life-changing. And I don't think they're unrelated, in my experience, to what happens from the months and years of sitting zazen. I have a different kind of experience of that of a kind of physical shift in my body that it's, I, I don't even hard to put it into words in that way because it's kind of operates in such a wide plane of what might what I think of more realization. I just wonder hmm. if that was true for you. Yes and no. It could be something really big, like like a bolt or something, bolt of lightning. But it might not be. It might be very subtle. In fact, most for me personally, most of my uh, emotions, feelings are very subtle. Very subtle. It's just I'm not a real um, out, out there kind of person. So that's just how it is for me. And I have to really pay attention because there will be a little tiny shift. I may not notice it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh yeah, beautiful. Thanks for your talking. I'm going to break my own rule and not ask a question, but just say a comment really quick, which is that the system that you described where trees share resources, yes. um, it's very interesting because in order to do that, they need to sort of draw on networks of soil fungus and microorganisms. And in my mind, when I imagine that happening, I just think of everyone in the soil just single-mindedly participating. No one's necessarily trying to help each other, but everyone just does their job, and I think that's an amazing part of that. That's really nice. Thank you, new work leader. Gonna <laughs> <laughs> get our assignments. Campbell, do you have, would you like to say something? No, still thank you. All right. There's one hand from online. Okay, we'll take thank that. Can I take it after Susan? Susan's got the mic, and then we'll, I'd like to hear from Nathan. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Carol. Um, someone who left practice and practice asked me before leaving, um, how do we know that um, our maturing doesn't just happen naturally? How do we know that it's related to Zen practice. And I always thought that that question was really loaded with comparative mind um, or gaining mind. Mm. And so I was just wondering, coming to the end of the practice period, what studying the Genjo Koan this time, what for you have you learned about that question? comparative mind, um, gaining mind. What does the Genji of Koan teach us <laughs> Well, I think it's, for me personally, I think it's made me more aware of that in my own self and how useless it is. Is there something about the Genji of Koan that's made you more aware of that? What is last lines that you talked about? Uh, 
Well, it's just reinforced in me how important practice is. And in terms of the Ganjo Kones, it's uh, made me realize how much I don't know that I'd actually like to study this a little more closely because I feel like I've sort of really sort of skimmed here and it's got so much depth to it. Okay. Okay, for now. <laughs> okay, good, that's good. Do we have time just I, I did say I did tell Nathan I called on him. Last so. question. Hi Nathan. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I, I think I heard you say this, I'm paraphrasing, but that our experience is not the measure of our practice. And maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Did I say that? Our experience is not a measure. Is not the, the measure of our, of our practice. Oh, I see. Like, uh, the part about where I said it doesn't matter uh, about your previous experience in coming to practice, what you know, what you don't know, was that? More um, how it feels. Um, that it, I think you were saying something that it may not, you know, that the, the, the practice may not produce some feeling of enlightenment or um, mm -hmm. and that that's not necessarily the measure of our practice. Right. So I think we can't look to our feelings, our emotions, to see whether practice is happening. Now, I, I often heard Sojin say that, you know, don't, don't, don't rely on your feelings and emotions because they're usually deluded. Uh, and that doesn't mean, I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, for example, I'm thinking of grief. You don't, you don't ignore grief. You don't ignore sadness or any of those emotions and feelings. You go, you go into them just as we do when we have joy. We go into them. But I think what I was trying to say was, uh, well, I think, was that don't let them, they're not a measure of your practice. I think we're going to have to go. Thank you very much.